Gareth began our service tonight by saying uh, it's always difficult sometimes to take a step back uh, when you want to start out. And I have a confession to make at the beginning that the uh, second music album that I ever bought was Boney M's Magic of Boney M. Now, I'm sure it won't uh, buy me any street cred. Some of you guys may never have heard of Boney. Yes, great. Uh, but you see, uh, I think that many of us, many of us, if we're honest, know some of the lyrics, if not many of the lyrics, of the first song on the album. It's called By the Rivers of Babylon. Many of those lyrics were not new. They came from Psalm 137. It was a psalm which the exiled people of God in Babylon, contemporaries of Daniel, uh, sang to express their pain at being in exile. They asked the question, how could they continue to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, in a hostile environment? Let me just read to you uh, some of the first uh, few verses of, those, of that psalm. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars were hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of your songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Now I know that we in uh, this country uh, don't suffer much for being Christians certainly not half as much as uh, many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And as Mark reminded us earlier, 20 of our brothers and sisters will be executed uh, during the time of this meeting. Nevertheless, in our country, intolerance is on the rise. I'm sure each one of us who calls ourselves a Christian here tonight will have experienced some form of mockery or marginalisation because we live for Christ. Earlier this year, the MP, David Simpson, spoke up in Parliament at the way in which Christianity is seen as fair game for abuse in this country. I'm going to quote for, from an article in the Christian Institute. He said this, he said, In the United Kingdom, the policy seems to be that people can say whatever they, uh, can do whatever they like against Christianity, criticise it or blaspheme the name of Christ as long as they do not insult Islam. In uh, Europe, Dr. Gudrun Kugler, the head of a European think tank, warned, she said this, churchgoers in Europe were heading for a bloodless persecution at the hands of secularists. She cautioned that uh, while it would be wrong to compare injustices in Europe to those in North Korea, India or Pakistan, religious freedom here is nevertheless a hard-won achievement. As we face rising hostility, the question for us, as for those exiles in Babylon, is how shall we not only sing the Lord's song today, but continue to sing his song day by day by day by day, come rain or sun? In the book of Daniel, we've uh, been given four main reasons already as to why they could continue to sing and why we can continue to sing his song. And it's all to do with his sovereignty. Uh, chapter 1, we saw that God was sovereign behind world events and what brought about his purposes. Well, you could often not see his hand at work. 
but he was there quietly working behind the scenes, equipping his people for the future. Didn't look like it, but God was sovereignly at work. At chapter 2, he gave King Nebuchadnezzar a dream, which through Daniel, he sovereignly revealed that he was setting up his kingdom that would last forever and crush every kingdom, even though it didn't look like it then, and it may not look like it today. Chapter 3, God sovereignly rescued three of his people from being burnt alive in a furnace because they refused to worship the idol of Babylon. Even though all hope seemed lost, he sovereignly saved them out of the furnace. And then last week, God sovereignly humbled the king of the superpower, Babylon. That king came to acknowledge that the Lord God did indeed rule all nations. And he called on all people throughout the world to worship him. It seemed impossible, but it happened. And this week we see another chapter. It's a new king, a new chapter, and this king is called King Belshazzar. He's uh, introduced in chapter 2 as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but if you look in the footnotes you can see that's probably better translated uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was an ancestor or predecessor. At this time in Babylon, uh, the king was really King Narbonius. Uh, he was the true king. And, uh, well, Belshazzar was number two. And uh, you can see that by the way in which he offers wise men and Daniel later on. The third highest place in the kingdom because he had the second. And King Narbonius, although he was absent, he was off on some sort of religious quest. But it was a bad time to be doing that. Babylon's empire was crumbling. A new empire was on the rise under King Darius. And as we begin chapter 5, we need to know that the army of that nation was at Babylon's gates. And it's right at the beginning of our chapter that we see, well, we see rather incredulous um, events. We see that Belshazzar has a blasphemous feast or banquet. A blasphemous banquet, verses 1 to 4. Even though the Persian army is outside, Belshazzar holds a banquet for a thousand of his nobles. They should have been manning the ramparts and leading the men. And all that Belshazzar is about is, it's a big power play. He's saying to his own nobles, I'm king. And he's also showing his defiance to the army that is at his gates. But you know what? This banquet isn't just a worldly power play. It's a far more dangerous power play. For it's a power play against God. In short, it is a blasphemous banquet. Just look at what goes on. Uh, verse 1, they drink wine. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or ancestor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that his kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Belshazzar is deliberately being defiant in the face of God. He mocks God 
by using the goblets from his temple, which was supposed to be for the worship of him. And he worships other gods. Here was a worldly leader shaking his fist in the face of God. He was throwing down the gauntlet and saying, look, I'm king, I'm in charge, I will live how I want, and I will treat you as I think fit, and you can't do anything about it at all. Well, we've already acknowledged tonight that uh, you don't have to go too far from here to see people in power shaking their fists at God. It's happening here in our country. In our government, we have progressively anti-Christian laws, not just being scheduled, but being passed. Sad to say, even in church government, we have men and women willingly shaking their fists at God and at what he says about church leadership and the roles of men and women. About sexuality, saying, God, we know better. And of course, even on a more personal level, when people shake their fists at God, they also shake their fists at you and me. We experience it perhaps in our homes or in our families, in our places of work, in the communities in which we live. We know that when people blaspheme God, they take shots at us also, and it hurts, and it puts us on the defensive. And at times like that, we wonder whether it is worthwhile singing God's song, continuing to live for him. There's a story told about uh, the atheist George Bernard Shaw. He was at a party and he boldly declared that at midnight he was going to blaspheme God the Holy Spirit. As the party went on and the time got closer to midnight, uh, a number of his friends left. At midnight he proudly stood up and he declared, There! Look, nothing has happened. I've not been struck down dead. He assumed that because he'd seemingly got away with it, God either didn't exist or hadn't heard anything at all. And that's what's going on here in Babylon. Well, whilst nothing happened to George Bernard Shaw at that moment, something certainly did happen in the palace of Belshazzar. Look down at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Suddenly, God responds. And let's note, secondly, uh, God's gut-wrenching graffiti. God's gut-wrenching graffiti. You can see from the narrative events here that uh, Belshazzar's blasphemy has not gone unnoticed. God has responded immediately. One moment the king's face is uh, flushed red with wine and the next minute it is ashen white with fright. One moment the uh, king's body was, well it was proud and a picture of defiance. The next moment, his guts are upside down and his legs are like jelly. At verse 7, he summons all the usual cronies from Babylon, the wise men and so on, and he promises them great riches. In fact, everything, everything in his power. They can have the third highest position in Babylon. 
But with all that bribery, they couldn't even read it, let alone interpret it. They had no more idea about what was going on than a baby being pushed down the street in a pram. So the king gets more terrified. Something clearly miraculous has happened. And maybe Belshazzar is beginning to see that his defiance against God, his blasphemy may not have been a wise move. Well, with all the uh, commotion, uh, the queen, probably the queen mother, verse 10, because uh, if you noticed earlier, in uh, verse 2, the king was already with his wives and his concubines in the banqueting hall. So this is probably the queen mother. And uh, she hears the commotion and she goes from her quarters, her wing of the palace, and she goes to the banqueting hall and she reminds the king that he has overlooked someone who might be able to help. So let's uh, note, thirdly, God's man and God's message. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, comes into the banquet hall. O king, live forever. Yet did she know. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters and astrologers and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So the king summoned Daniel and... Uh, King Belshazzar tells him exactly what has happened. He goes through exactly the same rigmarole as he went through with his wise men previously. Daniel hears it all. And verse 17, with all humility, he refuses the king's offer. He doesn't want payment from the blasphemer just to tell him the message that God has given him. No, in verses 18 through to 24, we see him explain God's message to this king. And it comes in two parts. First off, we get a tale of two kings and then we get the message and its meaning. So the first part, the tale of two kings. And the first king, the tale of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 18 through to 21. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the great and glorious leader. He had made Babylon the superpower that it was. He was in reality like any other person. He was someone, verse 18 and verse 19, who had been given the high position he had, well, by God. He refused to accept it, and he continued to live as if he was the one who was in total control. He did everything that he wanted. Indeed, those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But in his heart, he became arrogant and hardened with pride. So that in the end... He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory, not by another king, but by God himself, the sovereign king. God humbled him. And amazingly, verse 21, after he'd been driven from his people, made like an animal, lived with the wild animals and ate grass like a cattle, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone that he wishes 
Nebuchadnezzar, you see, had received a dream, but he'd refused to respond to God, and so God humbled him. And in the process, the greatest king of the known world came not only to recognize that God himself was sovereign, but just turn back with me a page to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. He goes on, verse 35. He says to all the peoples of the earth that they are to worship him because this God does all that he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here is the king of the superpower, the Barack Obama of that era, humble to his knees and worshipping the one true God. The one true God has shown him mercy and he has responded with humility. Here I think is an important lesson to everyone that even the greatest, even the greatest must be humble before God and acknowledge him. But there's also an encouragement here, isn't there? that God will accept anyone if they choose to turn to him and acknowledge him. No one will be turned away, no matter what their past is. It's a great reminder, isn't it, that no one is beyond God's grace and mercy. Look at the world leaders. Leader of North Korea. The most unlikely person, perhaps, to accept God. And yet, if he does humble his heart, God will accept him. Think about the most unlikely people in your families, those who perhaps prevent you from singing the Lord's song day by day, or perhaps the person with whom you work, or the person under whom you work. God can humble them. And that is a great encouragement, is it not? That we can still continue to sing the Lord's song for he is sovereign. That is the tale of God's work in Nebuchadnezzar. It's the tale of a journey from a proud and rebellious king, one who rejected God and ignored him, to one who was humbled by God and acknowledged God as the true king. Well, in verse 22, uh, Daniel turns his attention to the second king, to Belshazzar. And he says to Belshazzar, Look here, you knew all this, but, verse 23, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have acted with total defiance towards the Lord God. You mocked him, you praised the other so-called gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone. And of course, if you think about them, they're no gods at all. Can a piece of metal see or hear or understand? Of course not. But the Lord God who is sovereign can and did. 
He saw, he heard, and he understood everything that uh, that, uh, Belshazzar did. And because of that, verse 24, he sent the graffiti, the hand that wrote the inscription. See, that is the tale of the two kings. One proud and rebellious king who humbles himself before the Lord God and acknowledges him. And another far less powerful king refuses to be humbled. And the question is, will Belshazzar continue in that way? And this is the point at which uh, Daniel moves on to explain God's graffiti to him. God's message and its meaning. Verse 25. Mene, mene, take or parson. God here uses the language of money and of business. And he writes these three very simple words. Mene, verse 26. I have numbered your days as king. I, as the sovereign God, I am the one who raises up and brings down kings. And your time, Belshazzar, is up. End. As God's people, this should be a huge comfort to us and to any who face the pain and suffering of being persecuted for Christ. God is sovereign. And he holds those in authority over us in his hands. And so as we struggle to live for him, as we struggle to sing his song, be it at work or wherever it may be, as we struggle with being marginalized or being mocked, we can keep living for him because he is the true king. And he can and he will bring other kings down in their time. Don't forget that God sees everything, just as he saw everything with Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. You may think you are alone sometimes in your place of marginalization or persecution or mockery. God knows what we go through because he goes through it with us and he sees it face to face. So can I encourage you to pray to him to pray to him for a change of position of those in authority over you, whether it be at work, wherever it may be. Pray for a government in our country, let alone in other countries, that will pass laws that are in tune with God's word, that submit to him and acknowledge that he is the true sovereign. And believe that he can change things, because he is king. But also, don't just pray for a change. Pray also for the courage and strength to endure until that change comes. He can do that in you and me. He can help us to continue to sing the Lord's song no matter what the cost. So the first word that God writes, mene. Second is tekel, verse 27. See, not only does God see what happens, he judges what has happened. And in the scales of heaven, as Belshazzar has been weighed, he is found wanting. He's failed to make the grade. All of us need to know that, don't we? 
God sees and hears and understands everything that you and I do and everyone else, even the kings of the world who think they rule. And each of us will be called to account and each of them also. I was very uh, struck by the interview that uh, Tiger Woods gave just before he returned to golf. He said this, he said, uh, I convinced myself that the normal rules didn't apply. I was foolish. I don't get to play by different rules. And that's absolutely right with respect to God. Those in command of battleships, those in command of nations, those who are prime ministers and presidents of superpowers, the same rules apply to them and to us. God judges each of us. Tekel, the second word that God wrote. And then finally, the third word that God wrote, Perez, verse 28. Your kingdom is divided and given to Medes and Persians. So not only have God determined Belshazzar's days as king, but he also sovereignly determines his successor. He sets over Babylon and over the, well, over the nations. King Darius the Mede. I think I said earlier that it was the uh, armies of Persia that were at the gates of Babylon. I meant, of course, the army of the Medes. And it's just another reason, isn't it, to pray to God for a change. Because not only can he bring down kings, as he did Belshazzar, but he will raise up kings also. And as we wait for that change to come, we must pray for endurance. Well, we may wonder, as Daniel finishes his work as God's messenger here, whether Belshazzar has got the point, whether he will follow the example of his ancestor and acknowledge the true king. What happens, verse 29? Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, Gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. What difference has God's words written meant to Belshazzar? They've meant absolutely nothing. He thinks that the rules don't apply to him. Talk about missing the elephant in the room. Talk about putting your head in the sand. It's there for him on the wall. And so we come to the final scene of these verses verses 30 and 31, Belshazzar's inevitable end. Belshazzar remained unrepentant, unmoved by what God had told him. God's gut-wrenching graffiti comes true. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. God's judgment falls on Belshazzar as he is killed. And King Darius marches into Babylon he diverted the water supply, caused the river to dry up, and he marched his army into Babylon. It's a very sobering end, isn't it? It tells us that when God's judgment is given, it is final. The writing was on the wall, and it warns us, as it warns every person, that there is a too late in God's calendar. Belshazzar left it too late. He continued to live his life shaking his fist at God. He ignored him. He ignored all that had been revealed to him. 
And you know what? The awful thing is that when our time is up, when our days are over, could be tonight, could be tomorrow, our days could be numbered by the end of this week, whenever it happens, you and I, like Belshazzar, will come face to face with the sovereign God and he will weigh each of us. Let me just read to you some words from Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Those of you that know uh, two ways to live will know this verse very well. Hebrews 9 verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Those verses remind us why death is so awful, why Belshazzar's inevitable end is so terrible. For his death meant not just death, but it was time for God's sovereign judgment and condemnation. And Belshazzar went to his grave, shaking his fist at God and received his just deserts. Eternal life, not in heaven, but in hell. And because that is the reality for those who continue to shake their fist at God, it means that we should pray first and foremost for those who persecute us. Yes, we may long for a changing government, we may long for them to be out the way, but we must pray first and foremost that they would turn to Christ and be saved. We can take no pleasure in their death without Christ regardless of the pain and suffering they may have caused us or the pain and suffering they may have brought to a brother or sister in Christ. Indeed, not only must we pray for them, but we must use every opportunity we have to point them to Christ before it is too late. So as I close, God's graffiti, an ancient event with a timeless message for all of us that the Lord God Almighty is sovereign The writing is on the wall for any and for all who, like Belshazzar, refuse to acknowledge him. God will call us all to account for how we have treated him. There will be no exceptions. Here, then, I think is a great warning for us, first and foremost tonight, to any here tonight who have yet to acknowledge that the Lord God reigns over you. If you have yet to acknowledge that, if you have yet to live your life to the beat of his drum, a life of praise and worship of him, then please do so tonight. Don't hold back. Time is ticking. Every moment that goes by is a moment closer to meeting him face to face. You may humbly want to do that in the moments after this sermon. Or perhaps come and talk to Gareth or myself tonight to find out how to know this one true God and be set right with him. But alongside this great warning, there's great encouragement to all those of us who have come to personal faith in God, who are paying the price for allegiance to him, that he is the true king, that he is the one who reigns over everyone and sets nations up with the kings and queens that they have. He raises up those kings and queens and he brings them down And because he does that, we can sing his song far more so than we can sing any other national anthem. We must trust him through times of suffering. We must pray for those in authority to be humble before him. 
And we must ask him to raise up new people who will walk humbly before him also. So let's pray.